If you would, please turn with me for the last time, at least for a while, to the book of Acts. Today we're going to look at the final two verses in chapter 28. We are finishing a study that was begun some 26 months ago and 78 sermons ago. Um, And uh, I I consider that an accomplishment. Um, Maybe that I was able to make it and that that you allowed me to make it this far. Um, I, I hope that you'll... You'll see just the the blessing that expository preaching is, and that every week I'm constrained to preach on whatever is the next thing in the book. There are alternatives. I could just react to whatever headlines or chirons were on the news uh, this past week, um, but we're slowly making our way through books of the Bible, mining it for uh, the gems of God's truth, and uh, we scratched the surface. Um, we could start the whole thing over again, but we won't. Uh, next week, we'll begin our study in Micah. Micah will take us seven weeks through the summer, and then in August, we'll begin our next study on First Samuel. So we're going to jump back into the Old Testament. But you've got Old Testament narrative, so it's, it's going to be... Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. When you have a short text with just a couple verses, a lot of times you you have to have a lengthy illustration, (laughs) which was my case this morning. I don't know how familiar you are with the Queen Mary. If nautical history is your thing, you already know. But if, if you don't, the Queen Mary is a British ocean liner that spent most of her time in the North Atlantic shuttling passengers from Southampton, which is in southern England, to New York City. Her maiden voyage was 87 years ago yesterday, May 27th, 1936. That first voyage in like I said, was in 1936. And if you happen to know only a little bit about modern world history, you will know that something really big happened in Europe in the late 1930s. The outbreak of World War II. And Queen Mary proved an invaluable asset for the United Kingdom and for the Allies in general. She once carried Prime Minister Winston Churchill across the Atlantic to meet with allied leaders. And speaking of her, Churchill remarked by saying she shortened the war by a year. And she shortened the war by being a troop carrier. By ferrying soldiers from one location to another. She brought troops from Australia and New Zealand. She brought troops from the United States. All to the UK. She was a ship so large. I think this is true. Well, I saw this in my reading. I, 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 think, I think I read this correctly. That she still holds the record for the most passengers ever transported on one vessel. In 1943, carrying both soldiers and crew, 
the Queen Mary carried a total of 16,683 people. After the war ended, all the decor, the carpet, the china cases, the crystal and silver services, the tapestries, the paintings, all of those things that had been stored in warehouses were brought back and refitted. And she was ready to resume comfortably carrying passengers from southern England to New York City. And during her active years, she would make 1,001 crossings of the North Atlantic. She would carry 2.1 million passengers over 3.7 million miles. But in time, she would be retired. Due to these things called jet airplanes, they, of course, made it much cheaper and much quicker to cross the Atlantic. So in 1967, Queen Mary would be retired and then purchased by, of all people, y'all know, the Californians. The Californians, the city of Long Beach, would buy the Queen Mary to serve as a tourist attraction. She would leave Southampton, go around the tip of South America, and then up until she reached Long Beach Harbor. And there she would be permanently moored. You can go there today. There are restaurants on board. There's a museum. There's a a three-star hotel. And when I checked this past week, you can get a room there for $169 a night. Now, why bring up this ship? Because she serves as an illustration of warning to the local church. And in order for you to get this warning, I need to bring up someone else, and that would be Dr. Lloyd Ogilvie. And if you remember Lloyd Ogilvie, he was a Presbyterian minister. He lived from 1930 until 2019. He was probably most famous in his capacity as chaplain for the United States Senate from 1995 to 2003. And when Lloyd Ogilvy was a student, he actually sailed on the Queen Mary from New York to Southampton. I think it was in the early to mid-50s. He would describe her as a magnificent ship. He thoroughly enjoyed standing on the top deck with that cold Atlantic wind hitting him in the face, watching her cut through those cold waters. And they would be parted for a number of years. But Ogilvy would meet the Queen Mary again in 1972. Ogilvy was called to pastor First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood, California. And there in Long Beach Harbor, they would meet again. But this time, she was considerably different. Her enormous engine that enabled her to outrun and outmaneuver German U-boats was gone. Most of all the equipment that made her seaworthy was gone. The cabins that once held soldiers going to war were now converted into hotel rooms. 
On board, Ogilvy found a museum, souvenir shops, and restaurants. They even hired actors to play the parts of captain and crew, and these actors spoke with British accents. Seeing all this and then remembering back on that voyage in his younger years, remembering this majestic ship sailing through the waters of the North Atlantic, remembering the stories of her from World War II, and then seeing her now. Do you know what it made him feel? Disappointment. Lloyd Ogilvy recalled, he said, quote, While on board the motionless queen, I reviewed a documentary movie about how she was built and the way she served through wars and changing history. The movie ended with a triumphant but somehow tragic statement supported by an upsweep of dramatic music. The greatest ship that ever went to sea is now the greatest ship to come and see. End quote. And there's our warning, friends. I wanted to tell you this whole illustration because I want you to consider the RMS Queen Mary as an illustration of the church. I mean, as we, as we think back over the last couple of years and what we've seen in the book of Acts, we remember how it began with a promise that the risen Lord made. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we've seen that that's not only a promise, but it's an outline of the book. The Holy Spirit does come upon the disciples in chapter 2. He fills them with power. Peter preaches, and in one day, 3,000 souls are admitted into the kingdom. We saw miracles in Jerusalem. We saw the testimony of Stephen, who was the first martyr, stoned to death on account of his faith. We saw Philip proclaim Christ in Samaria in Acts 8. Uh, The Ethiopian eunuch says, can someone please explain Isaiah 53 to me? And he believes and is baptized and rejoicing, takes the gospel back home to Africa. Saul is converted. We've seen that story three separate times. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles in the home of Cornelius. God rescues Peter from prison, but he's left out at the gate of his friend's house because they don't actually believe it's him. We saw a prideful king struck down by an angel because he claimed the glory of God for himself. We saw Paul and company set out and return on one, two, three separate missionary journeys. We see Paul in the intellectual, philosophical center of the world. Athens, preach Christ. There's a riot at Ephesus because the church is having such an impact on the local economy that merchants who are selling idols are going broke and they riot. And it was said of Paul and his brothers and sisters, these are the ones who are turning the world upside down. I mean, it's like seeing the Queen Mary in her prime, but only to an infinitely greater degree. Here's the rub. 
That's what we've seen over the past couple years in the book of Acts. But how do you see the church today? Do you see her as a once great, important, history-changing organism, but now is part an engineless and just serves as a historical monument? Speaking of the church, could it be said that the greatest ship that ever went to sea is now turned into the greatest ship to come and see? I'll pick on the Europeans. You can travel to Europe and see many beautiful cathedrals and chapels. And they aren't causing the city to riot. No one is claiming that their parishioners are turning the world upside down. No, instead they say you've got to go and see it. You've got to buy tickets. It's a beautiful old building. You know, this is not just a European phenomenon. It's the same thing here. Only our churches are less old and less beautiful. But this is a danger you and I have to be aware of. This isn't a big city church problem. It's not a historic church problem. It's not a first church problem. You and I here as part of this wonderful little branch of Christ's church, must guard and work and plead and pray that the Lord would keep us active and use us so that we might be kept from becoming a lifeless historical monument. Now, I need to reassure you that on a whole, that globally, the church is very much alive and expanding. The church is not docked in a California harbor. I know that you can read statistics from Europe and the United States that can, that can be depressing, but globally when it comes to the church, and even the church in Europe and the U.S., the church is very much alive. She is crossing oceans. She's reaching new shores. She is bringing the light of the gospel. She's ferrying Christ's soldiers who themselves bring relief to areas of grief and despair. And every day and every month and every year, she continues to gather more and more that they might be carried safely to their Lord and glory. That's the global church, the church. But what about our local church? What about Trinity Presbyterian Church in Corinth, Mississippi? How do you see her? Is she an in- engineless ship moored in a calm harbor? Is she a museum where historic, reformed, and confessional theology is preserved for those who would like to come and peruse? Have we just turned into something you come and see? Or do you see her? as the living extension of the book of Acts? Do you see her as the glorious living continuation of the promise the Lord made in chapter 1? That we would be witnesses, his witnesses, to the very ends of the earth. You know, as we come to the close of this book, you, you have to know that you make a huge mistake if you close Acts 28 and you think the story is over. It, I mean, we should, after, after without hindrance, we should just say to be continued. Right? You'll notice 
that in today's passage, there's a lot Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us about Paul's appeal before Caesar. We've been talking about that for weeks. He doesn't mention a word. Now, we know tradition does tell us that Paul will be exonerated and he will be set free for a couple of years before he's arrested again. Luke doesn't tell us anything about that. Additionally, Luke doesn't tell us anything about the church in Rome. This church that was the recipient of this monumental epistle But there's not a word. All we know is that he met some fellow believers on the road. Luke doesn't tell us how Paul died. Again, we know from tradition that under Nero's reign, Paul would be arrested and later beheaded. But Luke doesn't tell us any of that. I mean, if you you bought a novel and it ended like this, you would throw a fit. With this unresolved plot. But, but there it is. Luke doesn't tell us those things because those things aren't the point. Luke ends this book with the gospel continuing to spread throughout the known world. And that's his point. The story isn't over. The story is ongoing. The same work through the same word, empowered by the same spirit, continues To this day, the same old gospel story that rescued the Philippian jailer continues to reach men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, and nation today. The ship continues to plow ahead, cleaving wave after wave, bringing the light of Christ where there's darkness. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of that work. And so with that image of The church has this glorious sailing vessel. Let us look at Luke's final words in Acts. But before we do, let's pray. Father, we are reminded that that we can be bold. And and we can can be bold and, and confident in your word because it goes ahead of us unhindered. It goes ahead of us unbound. Whereas I, as I remember Spurgeon saying that the word is a lion, loose it and let it go. Father, would you grow our confidence in your word and you, would you bless this reading of it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 28, I'm going to read verses 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. What does Luke want us to see in these final words in the book of Acts? The first thing he tells us is that Paul welcomed all who came to him. You'll remember that Paul is under house arrest there in Rome. He's unable to move around the city freely, but he's given a lot of latitude when it came to having people in his home. We saw this last week with Paul entertaining a number of Jews from Rome, and that no doubt continued, especially among those Jews who believed. But it wasn't only Jews. In verse 28, Paul declared that this salvation is also going to the Gentiles. 
And so Jew or Gentile, Paul relishes any opportunity to show hospitality and share the faith. He, he just couldn't stop. He keeps on doing this for uh, his, whole, his whole imprisonment. He couldn't stop. He never hung it up. He never ceased to do ministry. And in, in that, I think we have a wonderful Christian example that we are to use our time well. Luke tells us that Paul is doing this welcoming all who came to him. And he tells, uh, Luke tells us what he was sharing in verse 31. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has not parted ways with the ministry or the message. The good news of the king and his kingdom. I mean, you think of ships like the Queen Mary who are named after a monarch and who existed to serve the crown. It's the same with the church. Paul, Paul continues plowing ahead, teaching everyone, everyone he can about the king, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. Calvin speaks on this and says, quote, He preached the kingdom of God. Luke does not separate this from teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ as if these were different. But he adds the second thing by way of explanation. So Calvin's saying these are not separate topics. One explains the other. The kingdom of God is included in the knowledge of the redemption purchased by Christ. Therefore, Paul taught that people are strangers to the kingdom of God, like exiles, until their sins are atoned for and they are reconciled to God and renewed in holiness of life by the Spirit. The kingdom of God was built among them and flourished when Christ the Mediator united them with the Father, their sins being freely forgiven when they were born again to righteousness. Then they had begun the heavenly life on earth and would always long to reach heaven where they will have complete and full enjoyment of glory. That's a summary of what Paul was teaching day after day during his time in Rome. Teaching how strangers and aliens, those who were born enemies of God, might be brought into the kingdom of God by the grace and blood of the king. He's proclaiming the kingdom and teaching about the king, and we need to remember that in this period, there will be a lot of writing by Paul. During this time, these, these two years, he'll write Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. It is amazing how God uses him in this period. You have this book that opens with the Lord's promise. And here you have at the very end of the book, the faith being proclaimed in the capital of the known world. And what if Luke had ended with Paul's execution? What if Luke had ended with the trial before Caesar? What would our focus have been? What would have been on Paul? 
But where does Luke direct our focus in these final two verses? On the reign of God. On the rule of God. On his kingdom that is going forth in the king who will reign forever and ever. Luke tells us that Paul taught with boldness and without hindrance. Boldness meaning he he spoke openly, he spoke publicly, he was unashamed of the gospel, you know, just as he'd written to these Romans some years earlier. I mean, you and I as Americans, we have one of, as one of our rights, the freedom of speech. And yet, there are times when we don't feel the liberty to speak openly. When it came to the king and the kingdom, Paul felt no such restraint. Even though he was under arrest, even though he was chained to a soldier, he spoke with openness and confidence. And then in the last two words, we see that he did so without hindrance. I mean, just recognize the Lord's favor and power here. Paul is still chained to a Roman soldier. And yet he's not being silenced. He's being allowed to speak. And the reason is that this is the very thing that the Lord of heaven desired and decreed would happen. And you remember that visit the Lord Jesus makes to Paul back in chapter 23 where he says, Take courage. You must testify to the facts about me in Rome. And that's happening. Even in his arrest, even chained to a guard, the proclamation of the king and the kingdom goes forth unhindered. There's a great line that Paul gives in 2 Timothy. So 2 Timothy wouldn't be written yet during this arrest. Paul would be released, then he would be re-arrested in Rome. And in this second and final arrest, Paul is writing to Timothy. And he says this in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. He says, remember Lord Jesus, or remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. I love that. I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. That's why he's speaking boldly. That's why he presses on. Because he knows that no person, no thing in all of creation can bind the word of God. Paul knows, just as you and I confess every week, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. His word is not bound and it goes forth unhindered. And here's our final thought. It goes forth unhindered. Hindered, but not untroubled. Paul would write 2 Timothy shortly before being beheaded in Rome. Paul would preach the same word in Lystra back in Acts 14, and he would be stoned. The word went forth, but there was trouble. And do you remember how Paul and Barnabas encouraged those saints back in Acts 14? 
By telling them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul had troubles. He was imprisoned. He was beaten. He was often near death. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was in danger from creation, uh, the wilderness and sea and cold and exposure. And he was also in danger over and over again from his fellow man. And, and, And we understand this. If you've attended church for any length of time, you, you, you should know this. And you, you hear Jesus telling the disciples, in this world you will have trouble. We know this. But there's something we might forget. It's that the kingdom doesn't just grow in spite of suffering. The kingdom succeeds and is fulfilled through suffering. I got back from a wedding this morning. Um, I don't know if you remember, last was it last summer? Some of my former students came to visit. Uh, Emily Ray, now Emily Ray Guest, who's the daughter of Randy, who is the first pastor here at Trinity. Uh, she married Thomas Guest last night. Uh, Thomas was in a wheelchair, and uh, we had to grab four guys to, to get him in our building. We went to their wedding last night, and uh, Friday night we were invited to the rehearsal dinner, and we're, I'm listening to Thomas's friends recount his story. Um, Thomas just was a healthy, stud, good-looking athlete, and uh, his freshman year of college he had a four-wheeler accident, wrecked it, and he's uh, in a wheelchair, paralyzed from probably sternum down. And uh, I'm at the rehearsal dinner and so many of his friends are standing up and uh, not taking anything away from their words. It was very well-meaning, but they're talking about Thomas being stubborn and strong-willed and, you know, that accident couldn't keep you down. You, you got back up. You jumped that hurdle. It, there's another option. That option is that the kingdom grows in spite of suffering. Thomas continued on and pursued a career and married a beautiful girl in spite of suffering. Well, the other option is that that suffering is used to fulfill the purpose of God. Suffering is used, it, it, it succeeds The kingdom succeeds and is fulfilled through suffering. That that accident and everything that followed was used by God to bring Thomas and that family closer to himself. And we can recognize it's the same with, with our sufferings. The word goes forth unhindered, but not untroubled. And yet those troubles aren't just hurdles that you and I jump over. Those troubles are things that God intentionally gives to us that we might grow in grace. That our hands might be loosened from the things of this world and the hopes and comforts of this world. And that He would further be made our all in all. In just a moment, we're going to end with one of my favorite hymns, Jesus, how my cross have taken. And it it begins by saying, 
Jesus on my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken. You, you end it there and the point is not, look, look how destitute I am and despised I am and forsaken I am. Look how strong and resilient I am. The point is, look how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. I want you to know, I I want to end on a realistic note. I want to end on a biblical note. That the, the word will proceed, it will go forth, it will be unhindered. But brothers and sisters, there will be trouble. And yet that trouble is used by God. He will use every bit of it for your good. To bring you closer to himself. To make you more like his son to grow your hope in heaven. There are a number of reasons. But take comfort. Remember, he is building his church. He's building it today. And I want to end with a quote from old Albert Moeller, one of my favorite living Baptists. He says, Luke's conclusion of Acts leaves us exactly where the Holy Spirit wants us for the next chapter that is being written today. The gospel still advances to the ends of the earth. And God has called all his people to live as protagonists in this glorious chapter. We face an unfinished task. May God grant us the strength and courage to stand in that long line of spirit-empowered, faithful witnesses which stretches all the way back to that unlikely band of first-century pioneers, those men and women who filled with God's Spirit, did indeed turn the world upside down. This book ends with to be continued. There is more to be done and more to be brought in. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your Spirit to carry along chosen men who were inspired to write these words. And Father, we do ask that they would change us every time we read them, every time we open this book and behold these letters, these words, these sentences. Might we be changed more and more into the likeness of our Savior. Father, give us a confidence that there is power in this word. It is not an old religious Text. It is not simply an and, uh, old compilation of Hebrew writing. But Lord, this is your living and active word. Build our confidence in it. That it does not uh, return void, but goes out unhindered. Father, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.